I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, art and society. I'm Alex Dean, Managing Editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to be joined by science writer and broadcaster Philip Ball to discuss an essay he wrote for the most recent issue of Prospect, which we headlined, Can It Think? In this piece, Phil does a really excellent roundup of the recent developments in AI, including ChatGPT, as well as diving into deeper questions about the psychology of machines. Phil, let's start right at the top. What is artificial intelligence? It's been many things over the 70 years now that we've had that term. Um, So it was the term was coined in the 1950s. And the idea then, this was the dawn of the computer era. And the idea then was computers were already being talked of as thinking machines. But the idea was that, well, well, we'll turn them into things that really do think and respond in the way humans do. So the idea was to create some kind of device, some kind of machine that could do the things we do, that could hold a conversation, that could maybe create music or create art. Um, Perhaps it could control machinery. So all of these tasks were what people had in mind for artificial intelligence. Um, It's taken 70 years before we have anything like that, anything that we can hold a halfway decent conversation with. What's really striking is that for much of that time, progress was very, very slow. And in fact, people talk of AI having had several winters where it was just out of favor. No one thought it was going to work. There was no funding for it. And then someone else would come along with another idea and that would revive it for a time. But it was never clear that it was going to deliver on the initial promise. I mean, the the, the people at the outset, uh, the pioneers in this field at the outset, thought it might take you know ten or twenty years before we had something that could do what humans do. Um, that was clearly uh, optimistic, if not naive. But just over the past two or three years, what has become possible with these AI systems has accelerated enormously and in ways that people are finding quite alarming. And that's really what I'm talking about in this piece. What is a large language model? This is really the latest generation of the AI systems that we have, or at least certainly it's the most powerful generation. It's a development of an approach called machine learning. Um, which is 
really the approach that's been taken in AI since the turn of the millennium, that um, for a long time, no one was quite sure what was the best way to try to develop an AI system. Um, uh, but since that time, over the past 10, 20 years, uh, the field has tended to alight on this idea of machine learning, which involves rather than trying to figure out how the human brain works in some sense and then try to replicate that in the machine, the idea is that you train it. You give it loads of data of whatever sort you're interested in. Maybe if you're trying to make something that can do language translation, then you give it lots of examples of language translation. And the the algorithm basically it's it's called a neural network so it has lots of lots of, and lots of different connections between different in this very sort of dense network of nodes and all of those connections are adjusted every time the machine gives an answer to some sort of prompt to some sort of question they're adjusted um until it can reliably give the right answer to whatever you give it um, in the tra in the training set of training data. And then the idea is that it can then start to give the right answer also to things that it's never seen before, that it hasn't been trained on. So that's the way um, that these neural networks work. Deep, uh, uh, so that's sometimes called machine learning. Deep learning, which was something that arrived less than 10 years ago, it was really about 2016 that um, deep learning really started to take off. And that was really just a variant of it that used a slightly different kind of algorithm. Basically, it was a, it's, it's what it says on the tin. It says you have a deeper sort of network, more layers of connection uh, between the input and the output. And it turns out that people thought it might not be manageable. It might just sort of blow up. But um, actually, that does function much better and gives you much more reliable answers. And the advent of deep learning was when we started to find that things like Google Translate, you know, was no longer sort of giving you comically ridiculous answers. It was actually doing pretty well. And the same with image recognition. Large language models are a development on from that. They're a kind of deep learning, but they use a particular kind of algorithm. And, you know, the details are technical, but it's a, a qualitatively new way of doing this deep learning that is just much more reliable and is able to handle absolutely immense sets of data in these phenomenally complex networks with lots and lots of different adjustable parameters to try to get the the right output for the input and it turns out that this you know just doing it in this almost brute force way of you know making the systems bigger that that really pays dividends and that you you've, we've had this real sort of qualitative leap in the in the quality of what these large language uh, models can produce. They're called large language models because, you know, initially they were developed for handling language systems, for chatbots, for being able to engage in conversation, you know, human-like conversation. But actually, you can use any data set. So you can use them for image recognition. You could use them for, you know, sound recognition or speech recognition. You can even use them for analyzing scientific data. So they have lots of uses. And the most uh, famous of those at the moment would be chat gpt i suppose well chat gpt is the one uh, that brought these systems to light and i guess it was last november of uh, november of last year that um, chat gpt appeared and you know everyone was wowed by it you could if you if you could manage to log on to it at all with the demand then you could use it you know anyone could log on and register and use it online 
and you could feed it, you know, all these prompts and get something back that looked amazingly um, convincing in a lot of cases. You know, you could ask for uh, a, a, a kind of a you know recipe for making Victoria Sponge in the style of the King James Bible or something, and it would give you exactly that in a phenomenally you know realistic way. So that's really when uh, you know the world woke up to the power of these large language models. Um, having read your piece, can I put to you a characterization of how AI has developed over the decades, and you tell me if you think I've rendered it fairly? Um, so decades and decades ago, scientists conceived of, uh, of artificial intelligence and, and it started in nascent form, started to exist in nascent form. Um, and the expectation was that fairly soon they'd be able to build something that replicated the way humans think. Instead, it's taken a lot longer than at least the optimists expected. Um, but more profoundly, what we've ended up coming up with it's not even clear it can be said to think at all and if it does it certainly doesn't think like a human does so uh, there's been this bifurcation in uh in the way this technology works um is, is that fair yes i think it is fair um whether this approach whether a machine or the machines that we have at the moment could ever think like we do, was always uh, a very much an open question and I think very much in doubt because, you know, the idea that the, the, the... Because the notion in the early days of AI was that our brains are just kind of very complicated computers. Um, I think today it's fair to say that cognitive scientists and neuroscientists tend less and less to think of the brain as a computer there are all kinds of you know it's it's uh, there are all kinds of um other factors that are going on in human cognition we have bodies and the the brain is an organ of that body it's not just a kind of you know computer that's inserted into this body it's part of it it's it's um it's responding to what the rest of the body does um and the, you know it, it's our thinking is guided by things like emotions and a lot of the time, uh, by the fact that we are aware of what we're thinking, that we are conscious entities, which none of the machines we have at the moment seems to be. I think that's that's fairly clear. So whether you could ever emulate human thinking with a machine is still an open question. No one no one agrees on that. But that that's not what we're doing at the moment. But well, th this is the striking thing that the idea, as you say, the idea initially was, well, we'll try and figure out, you know, get a rough idea of how it is that humans think, and then we'll build that into computer algorithms. And I think what's become clear, although it's not, be, it's rarely been made explicit, is that that goal has really been relinquished, I think, with the advent of uh, neural networks and deep learning. Instead of trying to emulate what humans do, we've taken this approach of, uh, it, it's kind of a um, number crunching approach, if you like, that just feed these systems loads of data and, you know, let them uh, adjust themselves until they spit out the right answers. And I mean, that really is different to how we think, because we, we operate on the basis of intuitions and conceptual schema that, that guide the way we go about structuring the world in our heads. But machines are just pattern finders is, is that right that's absolutely right so you know as far as we understand it the way we think is 
uh, amongst other things, we build we ha- we build internal models of what we think the world is like. Very simple, sort of reduced models. The world is too complex, so we have very simple sort of rules of thumb that we use to make our decisions that usually turn out well enough. And they don't use most of what's available to us. In fact, they use only a tiny fraction of the information that's available to us. And our minds have been very good at sort of filtering what you know what usually matters. So the way the, the way AI is working is is absolutely very different from that. What is is striking to me about these current developments is that first of all, it's never really been acknowledged that uh, that that the mainstream AI research has sort of relinquished that idea of trying to build something human like. Has you know has has turned away to a completely different mode of getting an output from an input. So you know we're not in a sense trying to make machines that think anymore. Not explicitly, we're trying to make machines that will give us a good answer, give us the right answer, however it does it inside the, these you know this mass of interconnections. They're really black boxes. Um, I mean, I mean that's very interesting in itself because uh, you know I'm not an expert and and I see these headlines and it all seems um, rather scary. And then to read in your piece that they're black boxes and we don't even quite know how they work. Um, there's just too much to them. You know, there's, I mean, some of these large language models have, you know, a billion adjustable parameters or millions and millions of them, certainly. And but there's, we, we have no way of developing intuitions even, let alone models, of what a system of that scale is capable of. So they absolutely are black boxes in terms of, you know, how they're turning the inputs into outputs and what they're looking for, what patterns they're actually looking for, because you're right, that's ultimately what they're doing. Patterns or you know, what we would say, what we talk about as correlations between um, the the input prompt and, you know, the output, the, the, the way of creating an output that it has learned during training. Um, do, but- do you accept it makes them uh, scarier? I think it's it's certainly unsettling that we don't know how they work. Um, and one of the problems, I mean, there are there are. It's, it's not just you know that it's <laughs> that it's scary. There are actually practical problems with that. If we're going to use it, say, for uh, medical research, for diagnoses, and that's certainly one of the reasons why you know AIs like these were being developed. That potentially it could be a very valuable tool for making medical diagnoses. But it's it's clear that. No doctor is going to feel comfortable with a diagnosis that is given by an AI on the basis of maybe masses of data, physiological data about a patient, without some kind of explanation of why Why do you think that? Why, do, why is that your diagnosis is really what the doctor wants to know. So there's a big, uh, there's a lot of talk now about making AI explainable, making it transparent so that it's possible to see why it's reached the answer it, it has. And at the moment, you know, we, we, we're not able to do that. And as these systems get even bigger and bigger, we get ever further from being able to do that. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really the difference. Um, and as you say, the sort of change of tack that, that AI has taken. I think what has been striking to me is what seems to me to be a kind of belief that's emerging in the AI industry that nevertheless, these machines are somehow going to converge on the human mind, on human modes of cognition. And so we see these AI, these large language models, uh, being tested for, 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 for signatures of human-like cognition. Things like um, 
does the does the machine um, actually understand what, in some sense, whatever that might mean, does it understand um, what it's talking about? Does it have this concept that we have of what's called a theory of mind, where we attribute um, independent, autonomous minds to other people, and we you know, make decisions about what how we'll interact with them on that basis that they're actually, you know, that they're not automata, they're they're thinking beings like us. Do, do the um do does the AI do that? And you know, people are, are, are what's it like that. to be an AI? Well, I mean that is a you know yeah. yet another question. Um and that's no we know we're no closer to understanding that than yeah, we are it make sense as, what, as a question to pose it, it i think it's going to increasingly in the same sense as we ask that question about animals uh, about other animals um you know i think um there may come a time when we have to think is there something is there some kind of experience sentience you know maybe consciousness in in this system is there something it is actually like to be one of these systems because at the moment i don't think there is but i think it's it's not a an inherently crazy question to ask um but but i think that um you know what what worries me actually is the extent to which some of the people in this industry seem to be convinced that ultimately if we make these systems big enough they're going to end up like us um, they're going to, you know, have all these kind of human uh, cognitive attributes that we have. Um, they'll that, that somehow, having relinquished the goal of making human-like machines, we'll kind of get it by through the back door simply by virtue of having made them big enough. There is absolutely no reason to believe that that's the case, and I think actually there's plenty of reason to believe that at the moment these these machines aren't developing in a direction that's taking them towards human cognition it's taking them on another trajectory goodness knows where you think scientists have fallen victim to an anthropocentrism there it's very hard not to i mean this has been a problem you know even in the early days of ai with the very crude kind of chatbot type systems that were developed in the 1960s people were caught out by them um, and, you know, would mistake them for humans. And there's, you know, there's been a constant stream ever since of um, people, you know, alleged experts um, falling for that trap. Um, I mean, it's this is, I guess, you know, famously the, the Turing test, um, the, the idea proposed by Alan Turing that you that, that there's it's a measure of something um, when a machine can mimic human conversation so well that we can't tell whether it's a human or, or machine um but you know that's been that's happened time and time again with these different machines because we are you could say because we're very gullible i think it's probably fairer to say that we are innately built to attribute mind everywhere you know even to places that that don't have it we already attribute it in a sense to our computer we know we, we think why are you doing this now just you know at the wrong time um so uh, you know that's it, it it was never going to be a good test because we are built in a way that it predisposes us to be to be fooled um so you know then the question becomes well well you know is there a measure of uh finding out uh, well certainly of distinguishing the human from machine or of finding out what is really happening in the machine and we don't know how to do that i mean in terms of distinguishing the human from the machine um I mean, it's getting harder and harder, isn't it? I mean, you talk in the piece about, um, I think the example is Alice visited her mother because she was ill and a human instinctively knows that 
you're talking about the mother being ill because we know that people go and visit their ill relatives. And historically, that's the kind of scenario that would um, fool an AI because it would struggle to distinguish between who the word she applies to and the AI might think that Alice is ill and that's why she's going to visit her mother. Um, but now AI seems to be able to get around this sort of thing and it it's, can, can discern. Well, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's because, you know... Classically, um, we've we've tended to think we can make sense of that. We can decode that kind of ambiguous sentence because we are interpreting it in the light of the models of the world that we have of what people do. Um, so the clues aren't just in the words. It's not, you know, linguistics isn't going to solve that ambiguity for you. You have to have some sense of the world. And that's why some AI researchers seeing that some AI systems can now handle ambiguities like that they think my goodness you know they must have developed some kind of model of the external world to make sense of that there's there's no guarantee that that is what the the ai is using in order to give a correct answer to that sort of prompt we we have no idea what you know if it's exposed to this vast corpus of online language that they're trained on um, we, we have no reason to, you know, not to suspect that somewhere in there, there are clues for how to handle a sentence like that without having to develop some concept of what ill people typically do and don't do. And I think it's much more likely that the AI is finding some sorts of correlations within the data set that is enabling it to give the right answer because because of the sheer scale of the system, rather than that it has any kind of notion of, you know, there being a person even called Alice and her mother and what their relationship is and what would be typical behaviour in that situation. After the break, we'll talk more about the ethical implications of AI. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Um, Phil, we had our summer party recently and you and I were chatting about this and all sorts of things. Um, and at one point you mentioned the term prompt engineering. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, well, this was something that was new. I learned this at um, the the meeting organised by the Turing Institute in March that prompted this piece. Actually, I went along to it. It was a big AI meeting. And um, yeah, I, I, I learned that, you know, we, we, we're... We still have the situations, even with these very sophisticated AI systems, where occasionally they give you absurd answers. Um, and in fact, it's not too hard if you kind of know what you're doing. It's not too hard to steer it towards giving you a nonsensical answer or a contradictory answer. So, um, you know, that is, has tended to be sort of understood as an indication that actually, you know, these things still are very far from perfect. They're still not to be trusted. And I think that's, that's true in itself. But, but what's often said now is the, the, the problem there is if you want to get a good answer out of it, you have to know the right kinds of questions to ask. And it's not obvious how to do that. And so it, that that's really this new sort of field that's emerging of understanding how to build a good way of questioning the AI system, a good prompt in order to get a reliable answer out of it. And in some ways, it sounds as though that's going to be, you know, almost as important as making the systems in the first place, knowing the right question to put to it. Jeffrey Hinton, who um, is, is an AI expert and was at Google, um, has raised the alarm about AI. Um, his words were, my intuition is we're toast. This is the actual end of history. Do you accept that? Well, the frustrating thing about um, what, what he said, so he's just retired and he's, um, uh, in doing so, he's been voicing, you know, these, these alarming uh, messages without really spelling out what he's worried about. As far as I, I have seen you know in nothing that he said have i been very clear about what his concerns are it sounds to me worryingly close to the you know science fiction um you know idea of the kind of ai apocalypse the robot takeover um which really i think does at this stage belong in science fiction you know there's absolutely no obvious reason why that should be so so i don't really know you know, what has spooked him so much about that. Um, but I think that the real problem with putting things in, in quite a sort of an apocalyptic way like that is that potentially it detracts. Well, first of all, it sets up a a, a potential sort of um, scenario where you either be believe that and you think, oh, my God, we're doomed, or you think uh, some other uh, AI specialists say, no, it's fine. We've got it under control. These things, you know, we, we know um, well enough how to handle them. We can switch them off, you know, stop panicking. And I think that the, the truth is there are plenty of reasons to be worried about these systems we have, but they're not re they're not science fiction reasons. They're much more mundane ones in a way. And we see them already that, you know, in, in the course of inventing something that could be a very valuable tool for all kinds of reasons, we have necessarily also invented, for example, a misinformation machine that will churn out very convincing misinformation um, you know, at the drop of a hat, um, and it could it could 
direct that misinformation in very clever ways to particular audiences and make it more persuasive. It has, it has no sense of truth. Um, well, it certainly it, it doesn't. I mean, it's um, at the moment, you know, if you try to get AR, these AR, these large language models to say things that are patently untrue, then generally speaking, they, they won't do that, um, which is reassuring. But the only reason they, you know, it's not because they're moral <laughs> entities. It's because mostly thank goodness out there in the training set of data that it's trained on um that data is not only on the whole reliable and true but there are probably also plenty of occasions where people are saying this is actually true and that is false and that's what the the machine will pick up on um you know who knows how long that will last um but you know there's no intrinsic sense of 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 truth or morality in in these machines so it's not difficult to um to find ways of making it spit out misinformation. Um, you know, you just train it on um, <laughs> misinformation. There's plenty of it existing already. Um, and that's an exponential process because that all then goes back into the, the mix of things that these you know, systems will be, will be trained on. Um, what's, all, what's perhaps equally worrying is that it comes up with nonsense. It just makes stuff up. Um, I mean, even that is to anthropomorphize it. Um, it's, you know, it, it finds answers. <laughs> Somehow it puts together answers that are simply untrue, that are fabricated, but that are kind of often weirdly plausible. So it's very hard to spot. There are examples of where AI has just not only come up with facts that are untrue, but has invented references you know academic references in support of of those false facts so uh, it it it's you know that too is going to be polluting our information sphere in ways that we it, it becomes very very hard to to undo these are the kinds of things we should be worried about and and also you know the the danger is that we will end up trusting it too much, attributing too much human-like thinking to it in ways that lead us to trust what it's saying when we shouldn't. Um, so it's not that the machine is scheming. It's that we certainly have no, you know, no training, no history of dealing with a system like this in a responsible, sensible way. Are you an AI optimist or an AI pessimist? I, I'm... I'm <laughs> I'm probably in the middle again of those because again I'm I'm not worried that um AI is going to somehow wipe us out. Um at least at the moment I see no reason why that that should be a a danger. You know, we are obviously increasingly dependent on our computer and uh you know information networks, but that is not specific to AI. Um but I do think that there are some very real worries um like these and so i absolutely think that it's um something we should be worrying about and in part this one of the conversations i had at the um this meeting in march with was with gary marcus who is a cognitive scientist and uh, an expert in ai and he's been a long time kind of skeptic of some of the claims that the ai industry has has uh, been making and i think he's he's one of the most trustworthy skeptics so i spoke to gary about this and he was really worried about the way things were taking off for these more immediate sort of mundane but nevertheless very concerning uh reasons and uh he was uh really felt that we needed you know now to be developing tools to combat some of these um these these potential problems 
um, in between March and now, I gather Gary has found the funding and has set up uh, an institute that will aim to do that. But of course, he's not alone. Plenty of other people are. And, you know, Rishi Sunak has been wanting to position the UK as a centre for AI regulation. And he's uh, called for this big summit. I think it's in, in September um, to discuss these the, these issues. And I'm glad at least that it does seem as though some in the industry, where previously they had a very laissez-faire attitude to this, we just put it out there and, you know, let software be free. Um, now, at least, I think there are signs that they're starting to realise that there's a need to to regulate this. And Gary said to me that, that perhaps what we should we should think about AI in the same way as we think about drugs. We don't just put them out into the market, we test them. We test them, you know, with massive trials to make sure they're safe. Maybe we should do the same with these large language models before we release them. Phil, thanks very much. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, then grab a copy of our brand new issue of Prospect Magazine, which includes Phil's excellent essay, as well as our cover story by Guy Standing about Prince Charles's... See, still stuck in it. Still stuck in Prince Charles. I said Prince Charles. <laughs> I wouldn't have noticed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As well as our cover story by Guy Standing about King Charles's underwater empire, journalist Hella Pick on Austrian anti-Semitism, and a conversation between Kate Rayworth and Sam Fankhauser about what green growth really means. While you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman and Mike Brearley. It's a joy. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes cry but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcasts or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.